This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. The World Cup kicks off this week and all eyes will be on Brazil, but perhaps we ought to be paying attention to Qatar, which will be hosting the World Cup in 2022. Over the past several months, there have been an increasing number of reports by journalists and NGOs into the working conditions of the workers that have been brought in to construct the infrastructure for Qatar's 2022 World Cup. Now, most of these workers are from Southeast Asia, many from Nepal, and they have been dying in alarming numbers, and not just from construction accidents, but from exhaustion or cardiac arrest. I caught up with Pete Patterson of The Guardian, whose reports have exposed the harsh working conditions faced by Nepalese workers in Qatar. Pete is based in Kathmandu and takes us inside the migrant worker industry, and it really is an industry, that recruits workers from places like Nepal and sends them halfway across the world to you know, do things like construct infrastructure for the World Cup. So this is a, a very important interview, I think. It offers a human rights perspective on the World Cup, which is something that isn't always offered, so I hope to be doing something a little different here. Remember, you can subscribe to Global Dispatches on iTunes and find every one of my interviews on UN Dispatch. Here it is, my conversation with Pete Patterson of The Guardian. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So how many people are we talking about? Um, sort of what's the scale of this tragedy? How many deaths have there been? And how many uh, do you foresee there to be in the future if things continue as they are? Uh, it's, it's, the problem is on a very large scale. Uh, but it depends a little bit on what, you talk, what the parameters of, of, of the problem are because the practices that I unearthed in Qatar are very common in other Gulf countries. And uh, the, the country I was focusing on, the, the victims were mainly from Nepal, but uh, uh, many people from across South Asia suffer, suffer these problems as well. So specifically looking at the problems of Nepalese migrants in Qatar, um, we can say uh, for sure that at least uh, 185 five Nepalese migrants died in Qatar last year, two, 2013. Uh, and they died from a range of causes, but by far the most significant cause was a cardiac arrest. Now, there's no clear uh, uh, research has been done to try and understand this problem. Uh, but it, it's very strange that so many young men, because most of these migrants are young men, are dying at such a rate and are dying of something like cardiac arrest, which is not a, a, a problem normally associated with youth. Mm -hmm. So is there, do you suspect that the cause of death has been fudged uh, or is this a medical mystery? It's, it's complicated. Uh, on the one hand, I'm sure a large number are dying from cardiac arrests. Uh, 
And the most most likely reason for that, in my opinion, is is the conditions they work under and the conditions they live under. If you're working in extreme heat for very long hours uh, without sufficient food, without uh, without sufficient water, and then you go home to live in a, a terrible, cramped conditions, um, it's 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 likely, you know, that your body is going to suffer. On top of that, these men suffer extreme emotional stress as well. Uh, their families back in Nepal are depending on them for money. That's why they leave. And if there's a problem with being able to earn money or they're not being paid on time or they're not being paid at all uh, and, and they're cut off from their families and they're facing lots of other problems, they're suffering from a lot of emotional pressure as well. So I'm sure that many of them do die from cardiac arrest um, because of the conditions they're working under. Having said that, uh, if a worker dies in Qatar, uh, on the job, as it were, actually, for example, on a building site, the company that employs him is liable to pay compensation. If the worker dies off the job, for example, back in their residential accommodation, they're not liable to pay compensation. So there is at least an incentive for the companies to um, misrecord the cause of death in order to avoid paying compensation. Now, it's very hard to know how common is but the incentive is certainly there. Um, so... Maybe walk me through uh, how it is that these young men are uh, sort of recruited and uh, sort of opt for this, you know, these jobs in in Qatar to help construct facilities for the upcoming World Cup. Okay. Well, uh, firstly, just to clarify, um, the, the the Nepalese workers and the Indian workers and the Pakistani workers in Qatar are not all. Uh, working on infrastructure projects associated with the World Cup. Many of them are, but many of them are also just, you know, building small housing projects or, 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 or something similar to that. Mm -hmm. The reason they leave home is because, most simply, they're poor. Uh, Nepal, particularly, is one of the poorest countries in Asia, in Asia and has a very high unemployment rate. So with very few opportunities to find a job in their home country, um, working abroad seems like the best option. And to be fair... For some of them, it is the best option. Um, migration wouldn't continue if no one was making any money out of it. Having said that, for many of them, it ends up being the worst option. Um, so the, the process works like this. If you're a young man, maybe in rural Nepal, you can't find a job, you haven't got a good education, uh, you hear from some friends that you can get a job overseas and get well paid, you go to a local broker in your village. And that broker will assure you of getting a job maybe in the Gulf countries, um, and he'll charge you a certain amount of money. Very often he'll charge you much more than the government sets as a, a to what he can charge you. So typically, uh, if you want to go to Qatar, you'll have to pay about $700, which is a lot of money in Nepal. But these local brokers will often charge much more than that. Mm -hmm. And because these people are poor, there's no way in the world they have $700 in a bank account. They probably don't even have a bank account. So they have to take a loan. Almost every migrant worker I've met has taken a loan in order to afford his journey abroad. And that loan comes with a very high interest rate, 24%, 36%. I met a man who was paying 60% interest on his loan, annual are, interest rate. Are these brokers the ones that are giving the loan? No. So who's making typically, these loans? Typically, they'll, they'll get a loan from uh, a, a, a local landlord, someone in the local area who's wealthy. Even in the poorest communities, there are there are there are people with money. So it's someone someone nearby they'll get a loan from. 
Uh, they'll pay the broker who will send them to Kathmandu, the capital, uh, and uh, they then have to go through a second stage of agents, who are the kind of capital-based agents, who will actually do all the paperwork and arrange for them to go overseas. Often what happens is the contract they sign in Kathmandu in order to go overseas is a fake or false contract in some way. Uh, for example, uh, it misrepresents the work they do or it misrepresents typically the amount of money they will earn. But because these people have already paid a lot of money and they've paid money even to go to the capital to, to, to arrange this transfer overseas, they'll often just shrug their shoulders and say, okay, well, it's not what I hope, but I'm going to go for it anyhow. Mm-hmm. So they travel overseas and, 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 and that's when the second layer of problem comes. So let's say they arrive in Qatar and uh, they and may at, find – At this point, they're probably about $1,000 or $700 $2,000 in debt. Yes. I, I, yes, or, or quite often more than that, $1,200, $1,300, $1,500 in debt because often they'll take out extra money just to you know, uh, travel to the capital or to buy some new clothes or you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're heavily in debt on arrival. On arrival, they'll often find that uh, if their contract hasn't – being changed before they leave, their contract changes when they arrive. So I myself literally seen contracts before departure and contracts on arrival that are significantly different. But because they're already in, say, Qatar or any other Gulf country, and they're already in so much debt, they're not in a position to say no. They're basically trapped. Uh, And that entrapment is compounded by the kafala system, which is basically a sponsorship system in that every employee in the Gulf uh, has to have an official sponsor. So in Qatar, they'll have a Qatari sponsor. And, and that's typically a company. Because they're not a job. I'm sorry? That, and and the, the sponsor is typically a company, a construction firm, I would imagine? Uh, no. Ge- generally, actually, the sponsor is different to the company itself. So they'll have a sponsor and an employer. And quite often they'll be different. The sponsor has to be a Qatari citizen. Ah. The company doesn't have to be a Qatari company. Ah. Uh, now, now this, this sponsorship system basically binds these workers to their sponsor. They are not allowed to leave their job or leave the country without their sponsor's permission. And that essentially traps them. Uh, and they are therefore really at the mercy of these sponsors. And that makes them vulnerable to exploitation. And what think about form, it from the pers- sorry sorry go 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 ahead go ahead. You think about it from the perspective of an employer. If you're in, imagine if you're you knew as an employer that your workforce cannot leave your job. There's absolutely no incentive to look after them, to protect their rights, to make sure they're happy, to make sure they're safe because they can't leave. And so this kafala system basically sets up uh, embeds. It's a systematic uh, system of exploitation. And what forms does that exploitation take? It, it takes two forms, really. Um, at the one level, uh, it, 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 it's often seen in the kind of the physical conditions that the workers have to endure. So very long hours, uh, very poor living conditions. Uh, remarkably, many workers go hungry, very often there's food shortages. And this is, remember, Qatar, one of the richest countries in the world per capita. Uh, it, may, it may be seen in, in not having uh, a water provided on site. I mean, Qatar in the summer is incredibly hot. Can you imagine not having readily available water on the building site? Some workers told me that they had to go off-site to, to, to a mosque, for example, to, to find water. 
So there's the exploitation at the sort of, you know, the physical level, just in terms of your own personal well-being. But there's a, there's a deeper problem, uh, and this is often seen in what seems to be increasingly common, which is the late or non-payment of wages. Uh, and I've met lots of workers who uh, have either not been paid or are being paid very late. Now, you might say, well, being paid late is not a big deal. But it is a big deal if your family back in Nepal is dependent on your remittances for their own survival. So I met a worker recently, for example, who wasn't paid for many months. His wife back in Nepal was depending on his remittances of that salary. And because she wasn't getting them, she had to take out more loans. And so they got into even deeper debt. I've also heard quite a number of cases where... Um, because of the kafala system, the workers cannot leave without the sponsor's permission. So I've heard cases, I heard of one very recently, where uh, an employer uh, invited the employee into his office and said, look, you can go home, but you need to sign this piece of paper saying you've been, you've been fully paid up till date. And, of course, he hadn't been. So this is essentially a sort of system where it's, uh, if you want to go home, uh, you're not going to get your whole salary. And so is this abuse and exploitation, is this sort of the rule or is it the exception? Are there, you know, you know, are, are there a good number of Nepalese workers who sort of everything kind of works out as planned, where they, you know, work for a period of time, send their money home, come home and, you know, resume it's, their life in really, Nepal? Yeah. It, it's really hard to say for sure, you know, what exactly what proportion of workers are exploited, what proportion do fine. It's really hard to put a number to that, and I'm not going to. Uh, I'll just say a couple of things. Firstly, as I said before, you know, migration definitely works So for some people. So, you know, there's definitely some employers out there who are, who are, who are looking after their workers and who things work out generally okay. However, uh, when I was in Qatar, I was essentially working on my own without, you know, a huge, a great deal of support. And it was very easy for me to find cases of exploitation. So my question is really this. If, if, if I, working on my own, uh, can discover these cases fairly easily, there's nothing stopping a well-resourced construction company or, of course, the Qatari authorities from finding these cases as well. The, the question really is, do they have the will to do that? And who are these construction companies? Are these international uh, companies? Are they mostly Qatari companies? Uh, feel free to name names because it seems as if uh, you know, folks doing these abuses there, ought to be called out. There's, there's the whole range uh, from you know, multinational, well-known companies at the top of the chain down to very small uh, local companies that are often – often partnerships between Qataris and other South Asians. Um, the problem lies in the multiple layers of companies that are involved in any single construction project. Every So many parts of a construction project are subcontracted out to other companies. And those companies will, for example, subcontract out their workforce. So there might be company A that is responsible for one part of, of the building, but they don't actually have employees. So they contact company B and say, can you send me 100 workers? And when there's so many layers of subcontracting, it's much more difficult to point fingers and, um, you know, be absolutely sure who's responsible for what. And that's part of the problem. And so what are, what are some of the solutions? Has, has FIFA been involved at all? Have they, uh, you know, based on your reporting and others, sort of start to take a deeper look into the conditions of people that are, 
you know, building the infrastructure for the uh, 2022 World Cup? FIFA have certainly taken an interest since our reports and other journalists' reports on the problem. I personally feel they're flip-flopping a bit on the issue. They say on the one hand, yes, it's a problem, but they say on the other hand, but it's not our business to intervene in the problem. Um, I think they need to take responsibility for it. Uh, this is a host. This is a country that's hosting their World Cup, and more than that, it's hosting the world's World Cup. You know, people feel a personal attachment to the World Cup, and they don't want to be associated with something that uh, is associated with exploitation and abuse. So, I think FIFA needs to take a stronger position. Uh, the Qatari authorities need to do more, and the Nepali authorities need to do more. Regarding the Qatari authorities, uh, one thing that would be a significant step for them to do, although it wouldn't solve the problem outright, would be to abolish the kafala system. There's actually nothing to stop them from doing that. They have the power to do it. They have the money to do it. The question is, do they have the will to do it? Another thing the Qatari authorities should be doing is being much more rigorous on their inspection. They have said, to give them credit, that they've increased the number of inspectors significantly, labor inspectors, that is. Uh, but my question is twofold. Are those inspectors actually going and talking to the laborers themselves, or are they just talking to the companies? And if they are going to the, talking to the laborers themselves, do they have uh, inspectors who can speak Hindi and Nepali? Because if you can't speak the language of the people you're talking to, that's a problem. On the other side of the equation, the Nepali authorities need to do more as well. Uh, they certainly need to tighten up the recruitment process. Now, just this week, uh, just last week, I spoke to the Director General of the Foreign Employment Department in Nepal. Uh, and he said that within the last few months, they've uh, uh, um, taken action against 200 of these recruitment agents for uh, various uh, um, problems uh, that they've uh, been guilty of. So there may be some movement on both sides. Uh, it's, I have to say, I've yet to see anything really concrete that's going to improve the condition of workers yet. Uh, unfortunately, I think we'll probably leave it on that less than hopeful note. Um, but uh, thank you. Thank you very much could, for your could time. I, now, could, could I just make, could I yeah, just make one last comment? Maybe, maybe a slightly, slightly more positive point. Sure. Some, sure. People, have, some, some people have been saying that uh, there should be a boycott of the World Cup in Qatar. Uh, I disagree with that. If the World Cup leaves Qatar, there'll be no longer an incentive to improve the labor conditions there. The World Cup is a unique opportunity to shine a spotlight on this, and hopefully not just on Qatar, but across the region, uh, because this problem is a regional problem. Uh, and I think maybe, you know, the real positive legacy of the World Cup in Qatar would not just be a great World Cup, but would be significant improvements to the working conditions of the migrant labor force there. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Pete Patterson. And remember, I post a conversation like this every Thursday, a shorter conversation with a journalist or think tank type about something topical in the news. And every Monday, I post longer conversations with foreign policy newsmakers and luminary types, people you've probably heard of. Enjoy the World Cup. Bye.